Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have a very interesting conversation to share with you. I just talked with an architect. His name is Douglas Hansen, and he is the owner of an architectural firm based in Los Angeles called Hanson LA. He's been a part of a number of projects in Los Angeles as well as around the world. Uh, I had a great time during this conversation. I got to ask him a lot of questions that I've I've wanted to ask an architect. It's one of the fun things about having a podcast. I can host, you know, all sorts of different people for a variety of backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I think architecture is highly underrated. I think it's something that people should pay more attention to. It's something that affects each and every one of our daily lives in ways that we may not be aware of or, or consciously think of very much. Uh, and so we sort of explored that idea and more in this conversation. Uh, if you have an interest in architecture, I think you'll love it. If you don't, maybe this will spark something for you. So please, Enjoy this conversation with Douglas Hansen. Hey, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. My pleasure. I look forward to it. So for the audience that maybe is not familiar with your work, would you mind giving them an introduction to your background and, and what you do? Sure. Um, currently, I'm a Los Angeles-based architect, and we have a great local presence, but uh, both a national and international reach in addition to that. Um, I kind of grew up at Skidmore in Maryland, Chicago in the 80s and spent a number of years there and working in Europe and uh, met Frank Gehry along the way. So I spent almost 10 years in his office and then launched my own firm uh, after those two uh, deals. That's phenomenal, uh, being able to spend time with a mentor like that. When, when did you first develop an interest in architecture on, on a professional level? Was it something that you always had or is that something that you developed sort of as you're growing up yeah i've you know i've always wanted to be an architect so that made it pretty easy so i was able to um you know kind of from one thing led to another thing to another thing so that that made it easy so you know i know you have over 30 years experience in this industry and i'm curious how what you've noticed has changed since you started to the current state of the industry today not enough, to tell you the truth. It's an industry that's just really loaded with tradition and not very forward thinking and, you know, no disruptions. I think in architecture in general, finally, the, the kind of diversity is a big deal over the last couple of years. It's something that I've been interested in for a long time. And in our office, we have people from every continent and from all over the country and a lot of women in leadership positions. Um, so that's, that's one thing that in the industry itself, I mean, the software still isn't very advanced. It's, I don't know, it's, it's frustrating. We did stuff 20 some years ago in Spain that is still not, um, uh, you know, everyday kind of uh, 3D models and stuff. So it's, there's a lot to do. 
That's what's interesting to me about architecture in the first place. I developed an interest in it over the past couple of years. And what stuck out to me was how it's such a significant part of our lives. And yet it seems like something that, you know, growing up, going through school, a lot of people are not geared towards or they don't know about and, or they just don't think about the impact that it has on our day-to-day lives. And seeing the work that you've done with all sorts of different types of uh, buildings, commercial, residential, you know, multi-use buildings in Los Angeles, those buildings are there and they're there for people to use day in, day out for years and years at a time. And it sort of defines the space that we live in, in a way that, you know, more so than any of the other, uh, you know, solid things we interact with. So it, it, it sort of blows my mind on a certain level of how much these structures play a part of our lives. And yet so few people are interested in being a part of, you know, that creation. Have you, contemplate that idea or you know do yeah i i couldn't agree with you more you know it's every space and you know everything we touch and live is is um you know the built environment is is really an important part of every day everybody's everyday life but i think people um you know sometimes yeah it it can really uh have a positive or negative impact on your day you know, your relationships, like everything. And I think, you know, it's, 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 you're not even aware of it oftentimes. So sometimes when you feel good, feel bad, it's related to the environment that you're in, the amount of natural light, that, you know, whatever, all the things, the textures, the colors. Yeah, there's no way to really um, teach people or find a way to better share what we do with, with, uh, the kind of greater people. Maybe we need more television shows. I mean, there's tons of shows on doctors and uh, policemen, and maybe we need more on architects. <laughs> yeah, I. <laughs> that'd be awesome. You know, more more media for people to, you know, sort of soak up and get gain more of an appreciation for the art. And yeah, yeah. no, no, just I, I agree. It's just uh, so I think it's just educating people, right? That's I think a lot of what we have trouble with on just about everything. And I think that once again, most people don't even understand what architects do and how they may contribute to the built environment. So we have to figure out how to better teach. Could we talk about some of those specifics about, you know, how the, how the design of a building can, can influence your life. And and I know, uh, you know, reviewing some of the work that you've done using innovative methods, uh, with your building techniques, you know, you can do things in a sustainable way. You can build things that, you know, muffle sound. You can build things that, uh, increase, uh, you know, the way that people move through a space and interact with each other. How do you incorporate these, all these different ideas into a space in a way that works and looks functional, looks beautiful? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's the traditions of architecture, including light and scale and, colors and textures and all of those things. So the way I always uh, think about a project is very much like a Rubik's cube, which some people may not be familiar with. It hasn't been around in a while, but like all those pieces are there, right? And you just have to move them around and it takes a long time to kind of get them all in place. And then hopefully you finish the darn thing and then you finish and, and you know, some projects never finish for whatever reason, the schedule of the client, um, you still build it. But, but you didn't really get all the pieces in the right place. So it, it takes a lot of work, a lot more work than most people to kind of complete that cycle on a building where you're really able to pay attention 
to everything that's appropriate and should be paid attention to. And quite honestly, some people don't have the patience or the budget or the passion. Um, so, you know, maybe 10, 50% of the buildings are actually good buildings, in my opinion, and the rest are not. They're lacking in some way or another. Maybe they weren't fully completed is what you're saying? Yeah, or they're just responding to the wrong things, you know? So I think it's, it's pretty tough out there. And, and there's just a lot of bad buildings. And some are done by architects and some are done by, um, you know, developers or, you know, people that aren't, that are just building buildings for, for whatever reason. So I still fall in love with very utilitarian buildings because, you know, those really resonate. There, there are no extra pieces. There are no knickknacks and paddywhacks that, that don't contribute to it. Right, they usually deal with the land, the the energy, the environment. So those you can really find that are sometimes done better than than overthought or underthought architecture buildings. That that's interesting you say that because I noticed with your style you use very you know modern materials wow. and and modern methods and uh, but what you described there with a building that's more utilitarian that's something that I the more I've read about the history of architecture and, and looked into some of the you know classic buildings that people study, they all carry with them sort of that utilitarian aspect to them where they're, they're built in a way that not only are they, you know, beautiful, but they're, they're structurally sound and that's what makes them that enhances their beauty and their, their, uh, you know, sort of efficiency with its structure is, is sort of like an, an enhancement to the entire functioning of it. Um, how do you incorporate, like, like, is there a reason why uh, so many people today use, you know, particular materials, you know, different, all these new styles that, that were, you know, not so common, you know, before like 50 years ago? Well, I think, yeah, materials have changed, right? I mean, I think the days of brick buildings, except for certain places, um, they're very expensive. So I think materials oftentimes, um, as, as you know, they become more affordable to do certain things or, you know, artificial materials and a, a lot of that, I think do actually play into, um, the design process. So I think that that's in part, you know, we just have different materials now. And, um, I think that that does impact the way that people use them to design buildings. Speaking of the design process, or where does your design process begin? With a sketch or two or three. So sketch all the time. And that's really where, you know, a hand sketches or, you know, with my stylus on my phone or my finger on my phone or, or wherever, but it's just really the kind of just capturing the energy and the story of the site. So I think it's a free hand sketch, you know, that really, I really use to start to understand, um, kind of conceptual direction and scale and massing. And they're very abstract, but that's uh, without a question, my, my kind of starting point. Yeah, and it's, it's cool. You can see some of those, I, I'm imagining those are those sketches uh, on your website uh, next to, you know, the finished product or the proposed finished right. product some of the business, mm -hmm. or the buildings, excuse me. That's a, and, and some of them are so abstract, it's, it makes me wonder how, you know, that, that sketch leads to the development of, of, you know, all those finer details. 
Yeah, but that's really the trick because I think when you find the right sketch that becomes, you know, the the basis for the design and its essence is is buried in that sketch. And if it's about movement or relationship of a couple of different pieces or long and skinny and tall and all the subtleties. And so you you keep going back to the 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 physical models and the digital models and and using that sketch to to kind of stay on track because otherwise you know projects change and develop so i think if, if you can find that kind of sketch that is becomes the manifestation then you know you have something to kind of latch on to and it's somewhat personal i mean there's a lot of other architects that do it but i think that it for me without question uh, just becomes the reference and you know you wouldn't expect a lot of people some sketches are more literal and some aren't so some you can see that yeah we kind of got back to where we started and some were just more aspirational and using an abstract sketch like that is that common amongst other architects that's something that you've really honed in on or yeah i mean i think you know in the years i worked with frank i mean he's, he was always a big sketcher and you know we would just use those sketches because he wasn't always around <laughs> and we'd have to figure it out from the sketch, how to take it to the next step. So I think clearly the time I spent in his office and, uh, you know, other Renzo piano similarly. So I think I've had good mentors that I understand the, the potential of a sketch and, you know, over the years have just gotten better at it myself and, and now really feel comfortable um, using that as the, the basis for design. Could you could you touch on the uh, your your relationship with him as, as a mentor and and how that you know how important that was for you to you know develop your own set of skills because you know now you're have your own firm and uh, I can imagine that takes a long time to not only have the skill set the confidence but also just the uh, you know the ability to to perform well. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. There's there's a few takeaways you know from from that and. I think one is you just kind of the relentless pursuit and the passion and just sticking with it. And, you know, just it's a process and it's going to take time and, you know, you have to have the patience and the passion to, to hang in there and people are going to beat you up along the way. The client's going to say no. And, you know, the engineer may say no. And all these people will tell you no along the way. And you just need to take that and, um, you know, turn lemon, what are you know, lemons, lemons into lemonade and just make, make it, make it a part of the project, but in a way that doesn't kind of distract from it. So I think that, that kind of stick with it attitude, I think the, the process itself of just looking at it and, you know, all these different forms and not falling in love with anything as an artifact, but the fact that it has to be a real building is really important because you can fall in love with, you build a little model or do a, a drawing or something people love it as an artifact, but it's really a building that we're dealing with. So I think you have to be careful with that. And then just running a business. I mean, he's, these are great architects, but they've also figured out how to run a business. And I think that's sometimes people don't give people credit for because there's tons of amazing architects and designers. Um, but to do that and then be able to run your own business, I think is, is uh, another really important uh, life lesson from my time there. Uh, that's one of the things that, that really it, it hits me is how many different things you have to understand, how, how wide your, your knowledge base has to be to develop a functioning space. Cause it's not just design. It's not just running a business. 
Um, it's, it's understanding the way that people work and understanding that, you know, what, what's going to satisfy the client and what's going to create a space that, that, you know, satisfies the needs of people in general. It's, it's, uh, it's so multi multifaceted. Do you, do you ever consider that maybe the reason why it's not, uh, as popular today as it has been in other times in human history is because, we've moved to a direction of, you know, everyone is highly specialized and, and having a general, you know, wealth of knowledge is, is not, not really widely accepted in academia or, or in colleges or universities. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely. I mean, I think within our industry alone, you know, the architect used to be the master builder and know everything. Now, with all the specialties and people not wanting liability, you, you get all these silos within any project. And I think we, we try to still pretend or push the fact that, that we're the master builder and we should know everything. And, you know, to that point, it, it's, it's always, an, you know, you just get better with age. I mean, this profession is so difficult. And the, the good side is, you know, when you get 40, 50, 60, 70, I mean, all the great architects are older people you don't really see young stars out there because it's not really possible. So it's really a profession of people that, you know, have kind of put in their time and then you finally get good. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's pretty consistent that, you know, there's just not a lot of young people that kind of, you know, that are on the top of the list for, um, you know, as, as some of the kind of greatest living architects, they're, they're all tend to be older. Yeah. So I guess it just takes that, it takes that lifetime of experience to really master. And I imagine, you know, you have to be a part of many, many projects, but what is like the standard life cycle of a project? You know, it's, I don't know. There's, there's, um, it's never the same. I mean, you know, a really good example is, um, I did a sketch for a tower in downtown Los Angeles. And, you know, it was finally built 10 years later. It went through a couple of different owners and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it took 10 years to finally get through it. And that's fine because a lot of projects die and never get passed anywhere. So, and then a project like Bilbao, which is one of the most important buildings of kind of our time, we did that five years start to finish. Like literally let's go and, um, you know, kind of broke all kinds of rules and, and just, you know, in trying to, with contractors and, you know, just, just kind of set the bar really high for that, but had an amazing client and working with the Basque people in Spain, you know, everything aligned and, and really what we accomplished in five years uh, was amazing. So, and then there's projects we're going through entitlements right now in the city of LA that take five years just to build 140 uh, residential units because the zoning's not right and the environmental impact. And it's, it's kind of outrageous that, you know, and that's partly, California problem, but so there's, it's, it's way longer than most people think <laughs> and too long. Yeah. It seems like, like some people would go through an entire, you know, career and then shift to a new one in, in the course of 10 years, never mind sticking to just one project. Yeah. You know, I mean, my kids are in third grade, all of a sudden they're in high school before you finish it. I mean, you don't even <laughs> imagine things like that, but you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's really a good reference when you see them grow up and it's like, okay. We're still going out of here. <laughs> yeah. It gives you a good reference too for just the, the life cycle of the building once it's created. It's, 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 you know, it's there for your, for 
generations for decades. Sure. So I guess that's like, you know, in the movies, things move pretty fast and then they, they well, I mean, the movies stays forever, but the whole infrastructure and the whole thing goes away. Whereas buildings, it takes much longer, but you're right. They tend to uh, just be around longer. So maybe that's an important kind of relationship. So you mentioned Bilbao, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what makes Bilbao the most, you know, one of the most important buildings of our time? Well, I think, um, so it's the Guggenheim Museum and it was just, um, I think a couple things that, that really made it uh, important. One was just a new way to look at an art museum. Um, not everything had to be kind of these traditional galleries and straight walls. And so we were able to work with the director of the Guggenheim at the time, which was Tom Krenz and um, really create a, a museum for the 21st century. Um, I think the impact that it had on the city itself, there was, at that time, there was, um, things were pretty difficult there, factories. It, it, Bilbao was a, um, historically was uh, shipbuilding and the coal industry. And both of those in the early 80s, you know, were, were, were changing and technology was coming into them and the, the, the companies didn't invest in the infrastructure. Um, and then when the museum was kind of on the table, there was tons of protests and people couldn't understand why we were gonna spend millions and millions of dollars on a museum instead of fixing the factories. But it, it proved to be a gamble that you know really worked out and it turned a sleepy little town into an international destination. Um, and I think just then the, the technology that we used, it was a, probably the first building that, you know, the computer was the only way they could really build the building because it's all these curves and there was no way you draw traditional drawings or build it from traditional drawings. So I think uh, those three things really kind of changed the landscape for, for design and architecture. That's incredible. And you mentioned earlier about how some of the tools that we use to design buildings hasn't changed much in the past few decades. What do you see as like the potential for the tools? How could they change the art or the process in a way that, that makes or enhances the process significantly? Well, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous because, um, you know, the software is still people in the office here sit at their desk and use um, keyboards with numbers and letters on to draw lines. And it's just, it's, it's crazy. So somewhere it's just that efficiency, right. Of somehow not typing all day long to draw buildings. It just seems ridiculous. So that's within the office. The software is just not intelligent enough to kind of push it, push it down. There is some, but it's in limited use. Um, you know, in Bilbao to get all the curves and stuff and it's, it's, a, it's a little bit better generally, but it was a, aerospace software because those guys have curves on airplanes and all that. So we really brought in aerospace software to design a building, right? So those guys are way ahead, architecture's not. And then when you get to the field, um, you know, people still aren't using technology. There's a lot of unions involved and people don't want to give up the jobs. And so there's just a lot of pressure. Uh, no, no, there's, for whatever reason, advancing the, the field is just because of all those historical aspects. Um, make it just ripe for some kind of disruption. It, it seems like when you look from the outside that there's all sorts of rules. That I don't understand when it comes to uh, what what prevents you know a project from from being 
done in a certain way, like zoning rules. And, you know, you mentioned sort of that, that, you know, maybe bureaucracy or, or, you know, everyone's sort of rigidness with the way they do things now, preventing them from upgrading their tools. What, what do you think are the biggest things holding back or some of the biggest factors holding back what architecture could be, you know, today? Well, zoning clearly is one of them, you know, I mean, zoning really does impact what can be built and how it can be built and everything from how they count area, you know, balconies and if balconies count or don't count in a allowable area, then people put balconies on buildings certain ways and overhangs and setbacks and shading and plazas. All of that is driven by the zoning code. And, you know, I think one of my, um, you know, really uh, interest is as, as an architect, we just need to be more involved in, in this, you know, the cities that are putting together the zoning code and, and some of these zoning devices, because these are, you know, they're planners and, and people that work there, but don't really maybe have the everyday life experience of how this impacts a building. So I think as architects, we just need to be a bigger voice in, in helping form, you know, the, the, the kind of, public spaces in the city who who uh who writes these zoning laws <laughs> i mean you know they're re they're good smart people that you know in, that work for the planning department usually um but you know they're not they're not really actively working in in the city necessarily right or they're just not forward thinking enough you know there's just like broadway in downtown la you know, it's great. It's got these, all these historical buildings, but it doesn't mean that it, you, you know, you have to build a building that looks old to fit into that street. There's other ways to do it, but you know, if you're not kind of worldly enough or look for other cities that, that provide references, um, the easy way is to still just kind of, you know, the common denominator or the kind of go down the middle of the road and make everybody happy. And I think that, tends to be usually where we end up in some of these kind of public policy issues. It's surprising to me that, that architects don't play a bigger role in the zoning rules. You'd think that would be sort of like, you know, like the, like you'd sort of have to be in lockstep to, to make this happen. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, you know, I mean, I, th I think we try to break in in different ways and I get it as involved as I can through, uh, AIA and some of the other organizations that I'm uh, very involved in, but it's, um, yeah, they're just not as connected. And then, you know, even within a city, the engineering department's not in step with the planning department, who's not in step with the council office, who's not in step with uh, transportation. So each of them have different rules. And, you know, so it just makes it really complicated because you have to stop by all those departments to do anything and they don't even have the same idea of what a street or a sidewalk should be. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's complicated. I guess that just adds to the, uh, the amount of worldly knowledge an architect needs to have to be able to operate. Yeah. To navigate through that. Cause then you can, you can really do a good job, but you know, somebody's the same as I talked about earlier, someone's going to tell you no along the way and then you just have to, you know, figure out, kind of the workaround and that's that's I think what you become much better at um, with more experience yeah that's that's pretty amazing I'm sort of sitting here reflecting on that because it, it seems as though uh, it would be 
just the chief architect's sort of responsibility to to tell the city like sort of what will work, what doesn't work, or you know what a sidewalk should be, as opposed to the other way around. Especially when a city sort of bureaucracies and its rules sort of get swollen over time, sort of develop over time in a way that that you know. Do you find that it's it's crippling to most projects, or is it something that's usually navigatable? Well, I think. You know, it depends on the client and, and the architect and some people just accept it. And then some people try to make it better. Um, because the other thing you have a building and you know, it's a building and the building next door may, may or may not, may not be interested. I mean, right now we're a couple projects where we're trying to get the city to get three building owners together because nobody's really like everybody wants to do their own thing rather than help connect these into a, a kind of great urban fabric. So even though they wrote the zoning code, they still don't want to be the ones that are helping, you know, tie these projects together and see if their private open space can all be connected and kind of create these passageways. Um, and they're, they're not interested in doing that for whatever reason. So then each owner has to tap the other owner on the back and see if they're interested and, you know, they may or may not be. So, the city also that's a missed opportunity to for them to play a bigger role in kind of real time, you know, um, projects. Got it. Got it. I'm I'm curious what 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 compelled you to you know focus your area of work in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is such a you know architecturally unique city. Uh, I feel like there's no really one style that stands out it, it has so many different styles and different you know for the vast region that it covers what made you choose to focus in los angeles yeah i mean you know there's other great cities including chicago which i kind of spent a lot of time growing up in professionally but there's an energy in la and kind of a very open attitude that is just um it's just you know, I moved away for a year and you just miss it. I mean, it, it's really unique to LA and it's, it's because of the, the people it kind of draws here and, you know, not, not all kinds of different creative people and business people. And I think everybody's just looking for an opportunity and, you know, you can meet somebody and say, Hey, let's do this and do that. And I think that creates this really, really unique energy. Um, that's just not, um, you know, maybe New York has it, but now New York's kind of gotten too big and too expensive and too precious that, uh, so it's, you know, it'll change here, but at the moment it's just a, a unique energy that you feel, um, just being, being in this amazing city. So I stuck around because Chicago would be a lot easier to live in. I think, I think LA is a tough place to live, but, uh, professionally it's really hard to be. Certainly. And, and, and it seems as though there's, there's a lot of opportunity here because a place like New York or Chicago, it's so you know, they have so many historical buildings that I can imagine the zoning is probably even more challenging. Yeah, I, I think so, you know, um, but you know, like Chicago has a great history still of people doing really good buildings. So mm -hmm. it's, it's sometimes that, and it's just, um, it has everything, you know, our Chicago, once again, I think, um, it's, it's an amazing city and it has a great kind of tradition of architecture and I'm, I'm not sure why exactly, but you know, great architects have been there historically and they've had great planning. That's the other thing, the great parks and other great things that kind of um, set up the infrastructure for the city have, have made it, you know, everybody's figured out how to take advantage of that. 
Got it. T- tell me, are there, are there, are there uh, any, you know, resources or books that you recommend to people who are maybe have an interest in architecture, but uh, you know, are, are looking to dive deeper into it? Wow. That's a good question. I've never heard that. I don't know. No, I don't. I, that's, but that's a really great question. I should, I should, um, because I guess we're a little deep into it, right? So our references are all are pretty deep, but you know, people get attracted to, you know, I, I don't even really know some of these TV shows, like where they rebuild old houses or, you know, those types of things. Right. So I think there's a lot of interest in it. Um, but I can't think of a book at the moment just because I don't know, uh, that, that would be kind of a good primer, but that's something I'm going to add to my to-do list. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a weird one, but I, what, what caught my attention, I was, uh, recommended a book on Amazon, the 10 books of architecture by Vitruvius. Which mm-hmm. I, you know, the, <laughs> really? Amazon recommend as a starting point. Yeah. It started because I, th- I bought this book called structures, which was one that Elon Musk had on his, you know, must oh, okay. list. And uh-huh. that one I think is more engineering driven. And for some, right. maybe I had some other, you know, like meditations by Marcus Aurelius or some other, you know, Roman works or, and uh, this book for Trivius got recommended and I, and I click on it and I was sort of like reading the background of the book, sort of uh, blown away by the fact that something like this exists and something like this is, is just available to buy and click on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the, like it's like on the back cover, it's like, you know, this is the inspiration for, you know, Da Vinci's Vitruvian man describing the proportions, you know, sort of the perfect proportions of the human body compared to in, in sort of implementing those proportions into design and structures and, uh, and that this is the sort of thing that the Renaissance thinkers, you know, this was sort of the, the basis point uh, for a lot of the Renaissance buildings that we, yeah. you know, adore today um, in, our, in our beautiful works of art. And it's something that you can just buy and you can just read, you know, the, the words that were written thousands of years ago on the subject and uh and what you know and i didn't expect much out of it i decided to go for it and buy it and then uh it was just in the very beginning of the book something caught my attention about how being an architect required such a vast area of knowledge it it required you know understanding people i think he says something like you have to have an understanding of music and medicine and Mm -hmm. uh, all, all sorts of different uh aspects of of life and even at a time like that where they believe that architecture was in a perfect form the way it was and you know they're basically getting handing down these these rules it just blew my mind that it's something that like just exists in plain text like that but seems vastly overlooked yeah that's a good point i mean go you know back to to that time is probably a really good reference versus something that's you know a little more contemporary, but I think that you make a good point. I, I'm curious, and I, I don't know if you've ever thought of this. I don't know if this is a uh, silly question or not, but why, why is it that people don't make buildings the way that, uh, the way that people did thousands of years ago, including, you know, sort of like some of the functional structures, you know, or using vast, you know, like, like yeah. memory and, and, you know, building things that, like it seems like some of these buildings absolutely stand the test of time. Like the yeah. the Parthenon, like cannot yeah. be destroyed. Like like yeah. why is it that that we build we build 
build things that are maybe less permanent than, than people used to. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it comes down to cost. I mean, it seems like people are so concerned with cost these days and you know, that that's a big part of it. And I would agree with you, especially in public buildings. I mean, it's really disappointing when somebody just puts up a kind of crappy low rent building that, you know, for a city hall or, you know, some other public building that should have a real presence in the city. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to cost. And I think that that's, that's part of it. And then just not understanding probably the potential of what, how a, an important building, um, you know, would, would kind of anchor a city or a neighborhood. And so it's just trying to probably move too quick and not read history, understand history and just look at the building next door versus do a little, be a little more due diligence on, you know, what, what are we really trying to do here? Yeah. Be more forward thinking. Cause it, it's, it's almost, uh, I wonder if the Romans would look at the way that we build public buildings today and think it's absolutely ridiculous that, you know, cost is sort of the, the driving factor as opposed to, you know, utility and, and value over time. Because if you build something really strong, really functional to start, then it's going to pay for itself no matter what, if it's still there in a thousand years. Yeah. And some people get that and then some don't, you know, and you know, of course everything we're doing, in society is way more throwaway, right? So I think in, in the building industry, the same thing that buildings, people used to build them for, you know, generations. Now sometimes, you know, the life cycle is not meant to be that unless, you know, institutional buildings and other ones, but a lot of times people do it, they flip them, turn it over, you know, make a buck and it's just a different business model. What do, what do you feel is the, the life cycle of some of the, the buildings that, that you've built? or been a part of? Well, I think it's, hopefully they're easy to get to 50. You know, some will be around way, way much longer than that. But I think that, you know, as um, it, um, the, the kind of places just need land prices go up. And if you build a building, that's not, you know, all of a sudden you can get a lot more value out of it by, and it happened in LA already, right? And other places where they take down buildings that are 15, 20 years old and put up a bigger building because it's just, it's the cost benefits going to make that, it comes down to that money and it's going to make it work. So, I mean, I, I think there's buildings that I've worked on that will last hundreds of years and then some will probably not last so long, but definitely some will still last. I would hope, you know, another couple hundred years. See, that to me is so cool because it's like, for the number of people out there that, that work on anything in their lives, that's going to last, you know, even throughout, you know, past their lives, you know, it takes a really great artist or a really great entrepreneur to build something that people are going to appreciate even after they're gone. And, you know, it's sort of like a fundamental element of architecture is that whatever you're working on, whatever project you build, like you mentioned earlier, you know, it might take 10 years to get the project done, but the life cycle of that is, decades and, and could be around for way, way past, you know, your, 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 your life. Yep. That's, that's probably in part why, <laughs> you know, um, why we do it. And um, yeah, because to turn something from paper into a building, at least for me is still really, really exciting. Um, I, I like the process. 
Yeah, it's like it's a manifestation of you know you, you start with an idea, you you conceptualize it. You know, I I was super curious when I was on your website seeing those very vague, rough sketches, and to imagine that that's the starting point for something that you know could be a massive structure, hold thousands of people, serve many functions, and it starts with just a few lines on a page, and then going through the entire process of not only designing and, and drawing a fully fledged structure, but to actually create it with real building materials in a real place and having, you know, real people use it. It's, it's a manifestation of an idea that starts so small. It's, it's pretty insane. Yep. That's, that's a good way to summarize it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you're, you're so, you know, accustomed to these ideas. You're like, yeah, that's exactly it. I have. Yeah, but you get it. You get it. So that's really refreshing too, because some people, you know, don't appreciate that, that, that what it takes to kind of get there. So it's really good to hear somebody that understands the, the, the battle and the blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. It's like the more I think about it, the more it sort of stands out to me as something that, that is so unique. There are so few uh, professions where that's possible. So few opportunities where that's possible. And that's what really, uh, that's what sort of drove my interest in having you on this podcast is I would like to in any way, shape or form sort of elevate the conversation about architecture to hopefully get to more people. Maybe they can see the value of, of this art, of this uh, profession to, you know, get into it and, and uh, maybe seek more understanding about it so that, uh, you know, it can become a, a bigger, more important part of people's lives. Maybe we can do something about these zoning rules. Maybe we can uh, you know, just start a conversation about how important this stuff is for our well-being. Yeah, I, I'm, I would uh, love to, you know, have more conversations. And we host a lot of meetings in the office that, that kind of have these conversations, but they tend to be, you know, with other professionals. So I think the idea of somehow reaching to the greater public is really, really uh, just as important. And, you know, whatever I can do to, you know, participate in that conversation, I'm happy to do it. You mentioned before our call that you, that you just recently uh, did a TED talk, right? What was uh, what did you decide to to sort of uh, talk about specifically in that? Well, I mean, so this was up in Dakota, and I, it really occurred to me that um, you know that just this idea of kind of elevating the expectation to do good architecture, like anywhere, and you know, not not it's you know the, we all familiar with the term flyover states but there's really incredible resources in the whole upper midwest that uh, are in the upper great plains i call it that you know is really ripe for for people to to do really good work there and you know they have lead, they're agricultural right they lead leadership in the world and, and farm equipment and but the, you know there's there's opportunities to good art, architecture as well you don't have to stay locally and use the local architects but really Let's make this another kind of international destination for people to um, take advantage of, of this incredible place that most people don't know about. So just to, you know, kind of get them excited and say that let's think big. And, you know, the, the, I guess my, you know, it was all about global expertise with local knowledge. And that really gives you uh, that collaboration can really do powerful things. And, you know, that's partly what we did in Bilbao, or it was probably a big part of what we did in Bilbao was the locals were such a big part of it, but they were so open-minded to, to this kind of global expertise that, 
you, you can really go a long way with that and not be provincial, you know, like there's, which we run into all the time, especially if you're from LA, you end up in a lot of, you know, places that, that are very provincial and they hold that against you. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned thinking big. I, that's one of my favorite things to do. Love to think as big as possible, even if it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I'm curious, have you ever considered designing an entire city from scratch as opposed to singular buildings? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's maybe every designer's dream and, you know, people have tried that, right? Some of these utopian cities. And I mean, we were fortunate enough to, one of our projects is about, um, it's over 10 acres here in downtown Los Angeles at an old produce market. And so we really were able to, um, you know, it's hotels and, uh, school, um, commercial office buildings, residential towers. So it's, it's a little city within a city, like a whole yeah. neighborhood, a truly mixed use neighborhood. Um, so that was, uh, has been an amazing experience, but yeah, I mean, just to maybe end up somewhere and, you know, it's tough though, right? Because, you know, pe- right. People have tried this kind of utopian city before and, um, I don't know. Not, not so, there hasn't been a lot of success because they become very kind of academic, right? And that sometimes doesn't work. Yeah, and I, I what, what draws me to that idea is, is sort of looking at the trend with transportation and seeing how, you know, people can get from one city to another, from one place to another, you know, faster and faster and faster. And it seems like with some of, you know, whatever technology comes around in the next 50 years, that's going to increase you know, our ability to get, get around, uh, there could be opportunity in parts of the country that right now, nobody thinks, you know, like you mentioned the flyover States, you know, there, there could be opportunity to develop, to develop whole new places with, you know, uh, from scratch, uh, and still have access to all the other major cities in a way that's more integrated or seamless using, you know, modern 21st century technology and hopefully using, you know, tools to match that, uh, to match, you know, our time. Yeah. Well said. I mean, that, that's right. Because some, you know, sometimes you have to go to places like that because to try to do it where there's too many people or, you know, it's too expensive. Sometimes those are the kind of places that you can really make a difference and kind of, uh, testing ground or, you know, have real, um, yeah, like a lab, but without kind of all the burden of, the, the people and the regulations. So maybe that is uh, another opportunity. If I were to make a prediction, I think there'll be some super high value real estate in those places. As people grow tired of the cities that we live in now, they'll want to get out to the, it'll become a luxury to be, you know, like out in Montana or something in a beautiful place. I think so. Yeah. So, we, you know, I think I've, I've found beauty in, that, in those places for a long time. So, um, I think that's why it resonates with me as well. But I think you're right. At some point, it will become more valuable. Well, Douglas, I really appreciate you know your time and and you know getting on with me to to talk about this stuff because it's something that uh, I don't know. I don't I don't know any architects, so uh, you know being able to to chat with you about this stuff is great to hear that you know this is sort of a focus of. Uh, you know, people like you that are in the space really, really deep into this. Um, is there anything, you know, are there, do you have any sort of recommendations or, or yeah, 
words of advice for somebody that maybe is, is somewhat interested in, in this field of how to, how to dive in, get their hands uh, dirty and, and, you know, be a part of something like, uh, you know, some great project or just getting into architecture. Yeah. I mean, as for, for younger people, I think, you know, that haven't gone to school yet, I think really, I, I you know, if I were to do it all right, an undergraduate degree in architecture and a graduate degree in architecture, but, I really appreciate people that spent four years learning other things besides architecture because, you know, nobody would have changed my mind. I wanted to be an architect and I was going to go to school, but you know, you miss out on a lot of other kind of, you know, reading and theory and, you know, other classes and, and things that you could learn by spending so much time in architecture. Um, so I think, you know, you can always use it as a second degree. I think that that's really uh, on, the, on the kind of education side. Um, you know, just getting involved in your neighborhood, you know, local, there's all kinds of local um, neighborhood community type things that um, where policy and decisions are made. So uh, just the baby steps of, of going to some of those meetings, I think really you start to see, you know, uh, where all the, all the public figures into, into a lot of this. Um, and then, as you said, read, doing some reading or just, you know, call an architect up and go visit his office. And I'm sure they'd love to show you around. Fantastic. I love it. Well, thank you again, Douglas. Really appreciate your time today. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, your, your projects in the future. I, I, you know, wish you good luck. I hope you make a, a statement with all the work that you do. And, uh, and, and thank you for doing it. I think you serve the public a, a good service that, that, you know, is, uh, might be overlooked right now, but I'm hoping we'll, uh, you know, come back into the, the, the focus of the public eye and, and, you know, people in general can have a greater appreciation for the art that you, you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the time with you and uh, enjoyed our discussion. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.